All right, y'all, welcome to the Unfazed, Unedited podcast, where we're providing commentary on complicated topics in an uncomplicated format. I'm Dr. Shauna Payne-Gold, and I go by she, her, hers pronouns, and I'm here with Dr. Lisa. How are you? I am doing well. Happy to be back on this podcast. Um, My pronouns are she, her, and as uh, Dr. Gold just said, I am Dr. Lisa Ringerfield. Awesome. Well, let's get into phase one, right? Yeah, I totally made a mistake. This is so funny because we're like not editing this, right, people? So yes, let's roll with it. Yeah. Well, Um, let's tell the people how all of this happened and why it took so long, right? I mean, it's been a minute. It has been a minute. I think it's 10 months. If you listened to our teaser episode, you would have heard a little bit about this. But yeah, when... uh, Shauna and I, um, you know, left our prior producer. We were had grand plans to be back within 90 days. And then we began to investigate what it takes to produce a podcast and research producers. And we did interviews and, you know, life happens and all of that. And suddenly we found ourselves 10 months later <laughs> and we are back. But we are deciding to go it alone. No producer. We're doing this unedited. We are going to be... Um, raw and you're going to get all the good and all the mistakes. So hopefully it'll be a fun ride. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, and you know, Lisa, I I love that because yes, we're going without a producer, we're going on our own. And at the same time, we can't say that we didn't do our due diligence in trying to find a producer that really checked everything off of our list in regards to what we wanted. And so now I think we kind of stumbled upon a format that actually mimics our values, which I'm actually very proud of. You know, it can seem like, oh, well, we didn't find a producer. Uh, Maybe we found our values and I'm completely okay with that. Yeah, me too. And um, I think that Sometimes when we talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion, we monitor ourselves. We sometimes Mm. don't dip our toe in because we're scared of what we might say or how it might be interpreted. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that prevents us from moving forward, I think, in friendships, Mm -hmm. at work, in life. So, you know, this is an opportunity for Shauna and I to, well, throw our whole selves into the right right Um, and uh we will um stick to our values of like muddling through it i mean what is it you say Mm -hmm. shauna fail forward is that how yes yes fail forward absolutely fail forward and so you know with that i think what's really interesting one of our uh principles that we want to hold to in this format is that we want it to be accessible We wanted this to be uh, kind of a flow where we have three 10 minute segments to get you started thinking about a particular topic. And these particular topics may be linked. They may not be linked. They may be sequential. They may be random, whatever. (laughs) But uh, we certainly will be touching upon three phases. And I will say, Lisa, this first phase of the first episode of Unfazed Unedited uh, actually does link back to the original unfazed podcast and how we developed initially um do you remember uh the back and forth that we had with our producers around some
something that seems very simple, but it ended up being very complex, uh, which is our avatar. So if you're watching us on YouTube right now, or even if you go to our website, unfazedpodcast.com, you'll see the caricatures of myself and Lisa. And I remember the first version of that. I can't call anybody out. I don't want to call anybody out because frankly, I just don't remember who created the cartoon. Okay, let me just put it that way. But what I do remember is that we had a back and forth around skin tone. And Lisa, it was not about your skin tone. It wasn't about how peachy you were or not. You remember when we were kids and you get a crayon and you use peach? We weren't talking about how peachy you were. We were talking about what version, what shade of brown should work for me because the first version was a darker brown than what it is currently. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I remember sending it over to a good friend of mine saying, does this look like me? Because I don't think this looks like me. I I think the, the face looks like me, but the shade is something's off. Something's off. And you in a separate conversation said something similar. You were like, "Mm, that's few shades off. And then it became this entire conversation where we lightened up the brown of me um, in that cartoon um, after a couple of times going back and forth. And now, Lisa, we see The Rock is going through something similar, right? Yes, he is. Yes, that was a recent um, news uh, piece around his I guess his avatar, his wax avatar at Madame Mm -hmm. Tussauds in Paris, right? That he has critiqued them for misrepresenting his skin color. They were lightening it in this case. Is that right? That's right. They, They lightened him quite a bit. And for anybody who's a rock fan, you know his features. I mean, he's a huge guy. He's you know, of, I don't want to say retired. I think he mentioned he's not retired, but uh, a former active wrestler. He's still a bodybuilder. He's a co-owner of the XFL, all these different things that connect him to athleticism. We know his body type. We know his facial figures, but most people also know that he's proud to be of mixed heritage, specifically African-American. I believe his father is African-American. And so given that, to see the skin tone that clearly is not his probably was a shocker to him, to his fans. And I've noticed when he connects with folks, public, private, what have you, he's a very kind guy. And so he didn't blast them for the wrong shade, but he did make it clear that he needed to work with them to revisit skin tone. And so to me, I thought that was really fascinating because Lisa, you've mentioned this to me before around uh, the inability of many white folks to see variants in brown shades, which I thought was such a fascinating statement. I'm thinking to myself, it's clear that ain't him. That's clear that's not me. But to the white gaze, it all looks the same, it sounds like, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so this this issue is colorism, right? And it manifests itself Absolutely. in different ways, in different communities. And so that's what we want for you to think about. How might that be happening for you, right? Or how might you have engaged in colorism unintentionally in your time? And mm-hmm. I think we've got two, yeah, we've got two examples here. One where Shona was represented much darker, right? Like all mm-hmm. uh, African-American or people who identify as black are just dark, right? Mm -hmm. And then Mm -hmm. with The Rock, it was a whitening. Um, Mm -hmm. 
And so yeah. I think your point about the white gaze, right? Like what, yeah. what does whiteness do to representation? How do we white people minimize, mm -hmm. wash over, dilute, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Or concentrate, I guess, Yeah, the color yeah. of a person's skin based on our our imagination, maybe. Mm, mm -hmm. Well, Lisa, hold on now. We we have, okay, we have my example. We have the rocks example. And then more recently, I think I sent over to you the flip of the video of uh, NFL Hall of Famer Shannon Sharp being turned into this meme. I mean, we laughed so hard when we saw his completely inappropriate makeup that he had on for one of his shows where he was an analyst for. And what I thought was so interesting, again, within the same vein of colorism, he talks about his very dark shade of skin naturally. And he was, uh, he gave the whole back story of, of course, if you're on television, you wear makeup, obviously. That's a no brainer for most folks here that understand TV production. But in this particular case, the makeup was so thick. He even jokingly said that the, the makeup artist took out a butter knife and slathered it on his face. It was so heavy, right? And so when people showed um, the clip or the meme of him, I mean, he looked good as far as his attire. He always looks clean. I mean, he looks really good. Um, but his makeup was clearly uh, too heavy, a shade off, lightening him just a touch. And again, I'm thinking to myself, the majority of people that I know who are of African-American descent, even if you went on Black X, Black Twitter, any Black social media sites, they immediately picked up on the inappropriateness of the shade of the color of the makeup. Fortunately, he was able to laugh about it. But as he's telling the story, he's talking about um, he had a new makeup artist that was doing his makeup for the first time. He never mentioned the racial background of the makeup artist, but I would Okay, be that was really my question. Yeah. No, I know, I know. And so I was willing to like bet my next paycheck that this was not a black person that did the makeup, right? Because it was so far off. Again, going back to what if this person was a non-black, probably white individual who, like you mentioned, cannot see the various shades of blackness, brownness, and went in and did this makeup so much so to the point that now Shannon Sharp, who's dedicated his entire life to being a pro athlete and now, you know, is an analyst, is being mocked because of the color that she placed, she or he placed on him, then I think that's when things get really interesting. So we've got at least three examples yeah. of colorism recently. <laughs> yeah, that makes you it know, clear. And I wonder if that if that makeup artist was white, is white. Um, it's mm -hmm. this um, allergy to acknowledging race, right? Whereas I'm just thinking from it yes. from a kind of logical standpoint. Okay, you're doing makeup, right? You want to find a foundation or a cover or whatever that matches the color of the person's skin. Yes. And maybe they're like so concerned, right? They're just, you know, fumbling around what color rather than just saying, hey, we've got this color selection here. Like, what do you think matches your skin the best or whatever, right? Like just, you know, I mean, that's feels mm -hmm. very, you would do that probably for a white person, right? Like, so there's not, it's not any different it, depending on that person's shade of their skin, you're finding something that is the best match. It's just, so I do wonder if it's wrapped up in that, 
you know, oh, I can't talk about race when race isn't white, right? (laughs) Well, and here's my other piece, too, is that, again, we cannot act like Shannon Sharp is in the minority when it comes to the field of being a pro analyst, especially in football. There's countless men of color, Black men specifically, that are athletic and analysts so it's not like you would ever show up to that type of job as a makeup artist without a lot of different shades of makeup so it's not like he's one of several right right you know one of a few he's he's one of many that have a number of different shades especially black men in particular and so how the well she came up with that shade whoever it is i'm saying she i may be wrong so let me correct myself how in the world did a makeup artist show up and not give them the option uh kind of playing the guessing game and lisa to your point now i'm wondering if the makeup artist was like i think i know what's best for you i'm just going to put this on and we're going to fly with it and then it ends up being the wrong shade Mm, major colorism and it goes back to i love your language of imagination this person couldn't quite accurately imagine the actual color of this gentleman. And so now he shows up and he's a laughingstock on TV because of their inability to be aware mm-hmm. of the, the racial colorized differences. So it it's a sh- it was funny at first because at least he could laugh at himself about it. So he did not right. take it as heavily. But when you think about it in the grand scheme of colorism, problematic problematic so okay so we, we don't have time to go here but you just made me think of mm-hmm. the ways in which makeup has been used in a in a racist way like minstrels right thinking about that and like caking yes. on this this makeup that is not representative of a person's skin color but is that this idea of what a black person looks like right through mm-hmm. the lens of whiteness and so that i wonder how much that was playing with that i feel like it's a whole other phase conversation yes yes Um, yes yes let's put a pin in that one that's good yeah Yeah. and even is makeup correcting using the white lens oh yeah 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 yeah. Mm, we might have to go there too right but we may have to go there oh yes that's a good one so all right so that's phase one y'all the rock me (laughs) shannon sharp yeah. and colorism yeah. yeah all in good company there yeah right um, right all right so shifting gears and shift and moving on to phase two shauna and i had a conversation about a training that she was doing for a client um a few weeks yes. ago and essentially i will let shauna elaborate but i was dismayed <laughs> that she was having to teach empathy to this group of people, adults, right? Who I would Mm. hope in my naivety would already have that down by the time Mm. they reached their thirties and forties, but apparently not. So, you know, Lisa, I remember, so I reached out to you and I was asking about a concept, I believe in connection to empathy of some sort. And it was almost like, again, y'all, once again, another long, text message back and forth between me and Lisa. My first message was, hey, Lisa, I'm putting together this curriculum on empathy. Do you know about fill in the blank? It was almost like the proverbial record scratch where Lisa was like, hold up, forget your question. What? 
you're teaching people about empathy. Wait a minute. Like it was let let's put the brakes on for a second and just let it soak in that we're teaching people how to care about other people. And I'm like it in my mind, I'm thinking, look, I got to get this done. I got stuff to do. I've got a to do list today. But you slowing me down to think about how interesting it was to even go there was really fascinating for me. And so over time, again, and now more than one client wanting training on empathy, it gets really interesting, right? Because we're talking about overall an entire client, all staff. But when you specifically drill down to managers and supervisors who have, have a power dynamic, actually, uh, I don't want to say force, that sounds like too strong of a word, but actually getting them to focus on caring about the people that deliver on the product rather than just the product was really interesting to me because for me, it was almost like a pendulum swung too far, right? Where a pendulum swung towards productivity, productivity, maybe we all naturally cared about people, but at some point in our careers and our life trajectory, we swung towards the extreme of now we no longer care about people. We care about getting a job done. And now we're having to centralize, refocus people back on what it means to acknowledge human beings. And so I think part of this is my parent lens coming in where, you know, I have 12 year old, a nine year old, and up to this point, especially middle school, you're teaching your kids how to care about other human beings. In other words, how not to be an asshole, Lisa, don't be an asshole. Okay. Just don't. Okay. And so you spend all this time with kids trying to help them to be caring about other people, to not be an asshole. I compliment my son Kendrick, who's nine all the time about being such a big bleeding heart and just naturally caring about people and their well-being. And then we swing all the way to this point where I'm training grown ass people on how to care about people. To me, that feels like a pendulum swing, Lisa. And that's why I'm like, what the hell are we doing? You were exactly right to pump the brakes on. Have we not thought about how we got so far away from empathy that now we have to swing back? I don't know what to think. I just, I don't know what you think, but it's a pendulum swing. Right. And another dynamic, wasn't this um, a precursor to training around diversity and equity and inclusion? And you're saying, well, we can't even get there if people don't recognize the humanity in others and that empathy piece, which just, you know, again, this is, this is my whiteness, right? I'm like, that is mind blowing to me (laughs) that we're talking about that in a room of adults. predominantly white folks um yeah yeah and that's right comment my dog obviously agrees with me that it is mind-blowing so he's (laughs) contributing to the conversation here um yeah Mm -hmm. and i and i think that that highlights a difference in our lived experiences right and the ways in which i as a white person might approach things and you as a black person might approach but then we both are Mm -hmm. women and we've also both been socialized as women we have that gender lens but then it's it dive it um What's the word I'm looking for? It splits based on racial socialization, right? Mm-hmm. Like, so, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, it was, yeah, a, yeah. It's, it slowed you down, sure, but you also were like, well, of course, of course, we've got to teach this group of white people to have empathy when it comes to talking about racism. And I'm just like, how do really? these adults not have empathy? <laughs> it, and I, 
to that point though, I love what you're mentioning because, you know, as, as a woman, I do care about other people and I've thought about it as being, whether it's the stereotype of just being a nurturer or, or actually being a parent, some of those pieces that kind of weave in. And at the same time, from the racialized lens of I've been in enough situations where people didn't care. People didn't care about my humanity. They don't care whether I get home, you know, dead or alive at night, they, th those types of things. And so I've experienced enough life in my now 45 years to know that unfortunately there are people that have made it very clear that they do not care about certain lives existing. And usually that includes the lives right, of right. me, the black men in my lives, in my life, that they don't care about their lives. And so I've seen enough to prove that people don't have empathy. And so to your point, you know, so the two things that I'm thinking about is there's maybe one group of people that says, of course they have empathy. On the other hand, I'm thinking, of course they don't have empathy. <laughs> like it's different extremes and all the reasons why they haven't or shouldn't, um, which to me made it very interesting that, you know, maybe there's a third group of people that says, of course I have empathy, but is that appropriate in the workplace due to these notions of professionalism? Yes. I don't know. Yeah. So that's an extra layer. And then you were also telling me about how empathy has morphed to a phrase that could only be dreamt up in the context of business, right? What was that phrase? Girl, these people have been tiptoeing around this damn word. So we started out with empathy. Then it turned into, you're going to laugh, Lisa. It turned into human-centered managing, which is all across lots of different literature. I mean, Harvard Business Review, that type of thing. Yet, ironically, none of us can find a tried and true definition of it. That tells me that's some bullshit right there. The reason why it's bullshit is because it's like a, a it's a comfort word. It's we're not comfortable with compassion, with empathy, et cetera. So let's come up with this other approach to managing that's ill defined so that people don't jump ship from empathy. And so it's just it's weird. It's weird. I still haven't found a definition and I've been working on this thing for weeks. Yeah, it's like repackaging empathy into business language that is more palatable, right? Which is just mind blowing because I'm like, it just feels very robotic. Human centered management just doesn't feel like it has a whole lot of empathy there. Look, right? first thing I thought, see, maybe I'm just, okay, maybe I am just not academic enough to go there. But the first thing I thought was, why in the world do we have to say human-centered managing? Because who have you been managing all this time? Humans. Like, they, you're exactly right, right when it comes yes. to robotic language yeah. is that have we gotten to the place where we've gone so far to think that human beings are robots and so we're going to treat them as such and we just need this as a reminder that they're human beings? Who have you been all this time? Yeah, that is such a great point. Like we have to introduce the concept of human-centered management because empathy will send people running in the other direction, but you're already a manager and have been for several years. So yeah, who, what did you think you were doing then, right? Yeah. Well, and see now I, I'm trying to think from the resistor standpoint always um, of 
yes, I understand that they're human beings, but I'm not here to manage humans. I'm here to manage work. I'm here to manage product. I'm here to manage, you know, something else, but I'm not here to manage human beings because I don't want to get into the feelings part. I don't, that's too touchy feely and I don't want to be in people's business and I don't want to share my business. So let me just keep managing the product rather than managing the human beings who help us get to the product. I call bullshit on that, Lisa. I call bullshit on that. Yeah. Okay. This is like, as I get older, I'm totally moving more in the direction of like socialist thinking around okay. economic exploitation, right? Like because Go for it. Mm -hmm. in my limited knowledge of Marx and obviously Marxism, but the less Marxist version socialism, right? Is this disconnection between the worker and the product. Oh. And what you just said, right? Is that mm -hmm. if I'm managing, I'm managing the work, I'm not acknowledging the people that make the work. So as a manager, my lack of empathy, my lack of recognition of your humanity is maintaining that disconnection between the worker and the product. But as a manager, I'm also getting paid a lot more, right? So there's also that That's economic it. piece going in there, which, you know, I mean, I'm definitely not an expert in these areas, but that feels like a problem, a systemic problem. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, absolutely. Which goes back to uh, another uh, dovetail for another phase is our entire soapbox soapbox lisa on uh exploitation that that's like our new favorite word nowadays when it comes to dei is exploitation yep, yep. <laughs> yeah and what yeah, it really means yeah. and what it looks like in real time real time yeah, yeah. so yeah i think I've, we, used, I've used that word like more this year than i think i've ever used it in my life so i'm really leaning into the exploitation language look oh. let me tell y'all let me tell y'all so lisa sent me this fantastic article that talked about exploitation and we have been on exploitation for months now like we see it in everything everywhere all the time since she sent me this article and not that we didn't see it before but now we have really strong language to call the bullshit I think that's why we've been saying it all the time. We see it everywhere now, everywhere. Yeah, that's our new thing, Lisa. Yes, so, so shifting gears into phase three, when I think about exploitation, Oof. Oof. Um, I, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, this is my little um, choice here is to just touch on the Supreme Court of the United States, which if you know mm -hmm. me, you know I have a fascination with, but I have been revisiting my academic and social interests in this delightful institution, which I think is highly exploitative in a number of ways, at least many of its decisions are. But um, we just wanted to flag for our listeners that it's worth paying attention to, right? It's worth paying attention to the cases that are going up to the court and are coming out of the court. The last couple of years have been a, a banner, banner couple of years, obviously with the overturning of Roe, we had the student loan, um, debt relief decision was overturned we've had some gun control laws um taken down um we've had some um religious rights cases that have been highly problematic mm -hmm. for the lgbt community among others mm -hmm. and so this current cycle that we're in the the cases were began in October, they were listening to cases, is going to be just as explosive, I think. So I just wanted to highlight a couple of cases. And Shorter and I were talking about this before we decided to uh, record. Then the first oh, one is just, if you don't know this, it's going to blow your freaking mind, right? Oh, so, yes. Oh, yes. 
um, there's a case that's going to come that deals with gun rights and domestic violence. So just quickly, if you're convicted of a domestic violence felony, I think, um, you are not allowed to own firearms. So someone who was convicted, there's a little bit more detail to that, but they essentially are challenging this, these laws as unconstitutional, meaning we know that there's a direct connection between the possession of firearms, domestic violence, and intimate partner homicide, right? Like that is well documented. Um, but this person is challenging those laws saying that they're unconstitutional because they violate their Second Amendment rights to own firearms. This is going to be heard at the Supreme Court. And this is the kicker, folks, right, is the two years ago decision that overturned the New York state or New York City law, gun control law, um, related to concealed carry, I think, basically said that the law was unconstitutional because there's no history or tradition in the United States of um, such a law. So when we talk about domestic violence, intimate partner violence, this is where I think I blew um, Shauna's head off, is of course there is no history or tradition of protecting survivors of domestic violence in this country, right? So if that is your standard for determining whether a gun law is constitutional, then we are going to have a whole lot more intimate partner homicide in this country. And this is yes, yes. absolutely mind-blowing to me, right? Look, Lisa, I, I have this running joke with uh, some of my my colleagues that when I'm in protest of something, when I'm on Zoom, I turn my camera off. I, I'm turning my camera off. Turn it off right now. This is bullshit. I'm turning it off. Yeah. And, yeah, it's bullshit. you know, and obviously, y'all, just to be clear, Lisa has a much more expansive and deeper understanding of domestic violence, sexual assault, sexual sexual violence than I do. And at the same time, my very clear logic took me to some very clear questions around the history of domestic violence in this country, which obviously we have a history of violence period in this country, but domestic violence being named in what Lisa, the eighties, which obviously is a far cry from a long history in this country, yet it still exists. So how can you require a history and tradition of honoring domestic violence when we never have rarely have recently have right, right that's not going to work yeah that's not going to yeah. work so yeah y'all pay attention to that one Ugh. yeah it's yeah like so the, the, pun the pundits are saying that there's no way the supreme court can come down on the side of the defendant in this case because you know as soon as there right. is a homicide that happens right blood is going to be on their hands and they do not want that kind of public relations debacle right. um among other things which is a pretty um mm -hmm. jaded way of thinking about it but they're going to tie themselves in knots and do some gymnastics to try and argue why this is going to be an exception. So I guess we'll wait and see, right? Um, the other one I just wanted to bring up was uh, there is another case that is potentially going to impact organizations or administrative bodies like the FDA, like the EPA, and their ability to make rules and regulations based on legislation. So for example, the Clean Water Act right now, the EPA is the body that develops those rules and regulations and this case is potentially going to throw that out and say that those administrative bodies cannot make rules and regulations but rather congress has to legislate all of the rules and regulations so all of those delightful congress people who do not have a lot of experience and may not even believe in climate change are going to be responsible for the regulations of the laws that they pass and all those scientists that sit in the epa and all those other agencies it's unconstitutional for them to do that. So that's also a joyful possible shift that's going to happen here coming up in this in this term. Let, let me tell you all something. Uh, on the first iteration of Unphase, we had my 
wonderful close friend, Heather, who joined us on the podcast, specifically talking about um, the about environment, climate, as it particularly pertains to race and other uh, historically excluded groups. And let me tell you something, uh-uh, that's not gonna fly. I would much rather trust Heather sitting in hypothetically the EPA as an expert on clean water, clean air, all the things, giving us an A through Z, double A through double Z list of protocols, policies, procedures of how to map things out than I ever would any congressperson, even if they're in my party, even if we are aligned. I still would not trust them to do that because they don't need to be in the minutia of the how. It's one thing to say, let's all have clean air. It's another thing to say how to do it, how to do it effectively, how to do it with the least amount of harm and how to do it with the most longevity. Leave that to the freaking experts. They are experts for a reason. They've got 17 PhDs on the topic, but a congressperson who got elected is supposed to know even down to the minutiae that's just not possible. So yeah, yeah I, I'm I'm not a fan. I'm not a fan, Lisa. I'm just not. I'm not a fan. No, no. I think I I think that I think this is not going to go the way I would like it to. So no. and it's not just the EPA, right? We're talking about every administrative body FDA. that Im- mm-hmm. implements um, mm-hmm. the the laws that get written. So this is going to be a pretty far-reaching decision. So I'd I'd encourage Scary. you to pay attention to that. Scary. The last one that we that we wanted to mention was that you probably all heard about the Mifepristone case that um, mm-hmm. basically uh, impacted a person's ability to receive Mifepristone through the mail. Mifepristone is the drug that enables a person to end a pregnancy. Um, mm-hmm. And obviously with so many states now after Roe versus Wade was overturned, um, people not having access to like surgical um, abortions mm-hmm. that Mifepristone um, via mail order which has been approved by the FDA for 20 years. But what do those scientists know? Um, judges know better, right? They're the scientists, right. judges. Of course they do. Right. Um, so I I've clearly am not understanding the fact that judges also have these PhDs in science, but there you go. So that has not yet been at the Supreme Court, but the prediction is it will land there this session. And so there will be a ruling on the constitutionality um, or the legality of sending um mifepristone by mail for people who are pregnant and want to terminate their pregnancy so that just feels like a very big horrible thing that is looming too so even if you do Uh, not pay that much attention pay attention to this (laughs) oh my god well and you know i'm i'm grateful that you brought this up because i do think it's fair and important for all of us to be aware of the SCOTUS hearings are coming up and doing what we can to pay attention to that rather than looking in retrospect later like oh I could have done I could have said I could have whatever and didn't even at the SCOTUS level so I appreciate that piece Um, and you know I think for me what's really important about the strategy piece is yes we I, I do still keep hope alive but yet at the same time when when hope dies i also want to know what should happen next and how should i function next so you know we can go as far back in the summer as uh, affirmative action and some others where we were anticipating these things coming down and so therefore folks were already strategizing what to do if and when they did come down and not in the direction that we hope and so 
it's all about preparation at this point, given that we need to think about the fork in yeah. the road and what could be the the final decision. So, uh, well, clearly, Lisa, we're not going to run out of content for this doggone show because this stuff keeps popping up and deserves our yes. attention in a way that's uh, more focused, more knowledgeable, being aware. So I, I appreciate you bringing those SCOTUS hearings up because I hear at least like five more episodes and everything that you just mentioned right there, right there. So, well, yeah. given that All right. this is our first episode of Unfazed Unedited, which I literally cannot believe, Lisa. So 10, ten months, long time coming, right? Mm-hmm. So yep. where can folks find us now that we are rebranded, unedited, we're all over the place, where can they catch up with us? Yeah, so we are on YouTube. Um, as Shauna mentioned uh, at the top of this discussion, we have a YouTube channel that is unfazed, unedited. Um, and you can find that without the brackets around unfazed, I believe. Um, it's mm-hmm. easier to search for that way. And then that yeah. is where we'll post all these videos. And then we're also on Instagram, unfazed pod, LinkedIn, unfazed pod. And then we have our website, unfazedpodcast.com, where we will be posting the audio for this um, with show notes and a transcript and everything. Um, and that will eventually filter into all of your podcast feeds. We're still figuring that out, but that will happen at some time soon. And then you can also email us at info at unfazedpodcast.com if you have comments, questions, or topics you would like us to discuss. Awesome. And look, make sure y'all go out there and look at this gorgeous website that Dr. Lisa put together for us, unfazedpodcast.com. It is so clean. You can find all of the previous episodes and information about where we're going next. So please keep visiting that for updates as we continue to change and move things around. But that's going to be kind of the the landing the landing page where you can find all things unfazed, unedited. So if you liked this week's episode, like, subscribe, leave a review. Let me tell you, I sent Dr. Lisa a link. This was about a week ago about the top 10 DEI podcast that I didn't even know existed. Y'all didn't know that this list existed and the way they get to the top 10 is having lots of great reviews, right? So help us get there. Help us get there. Um, share this with friends, share it with coworkers. We realize that y'all use our podcast, um, the video or the audio as professional development, free professional development um, for your staff or your colleagues. So please share it with them or others in this phase of your life. But until next week, see you soon. All right. Bye, everyone.